Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus. We are beginning a short summer series through this relatively short epistle of the Apostle Paul. So this morning we will begin with chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, please give your full attention to the Word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. There was an article that came out in First Things, uh, which is an online magazine, uh, online journal. And in this article, it was written by a man named Aaron Wren, and it caused a quite a bit of internet debate and discussion, good internet, internet debate and discussion. And the article was called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. The main point of his article was that our culture has changed dramatically over the past three decades. And therefore, we need to reassess the strategies that we're using to try to reach the culture around us. The disagreements, in many ways, reflect the disagreements among the church. There's a lot of division in the church about how best to reach the culture. And part of that is diagnosing what is the state of the culture. And that's what his article tries to do. He gives a timeline for radical, rapid change over the last 30 years. And I'm going to give you this timeline that he gives, understanding that a lot of the debate was over the accuracy, uh, if not about the general idea, at least the timeline itself. But what he said is he talked about American culture before 1994, and he called that the positive world. In that stage of our American culture, he said, that it had, the culture itself had a mostly positive view of Christianity and the church. And to say that you were a Christian in the culture during that period of time, it was to your benefit. It helped your status, your standing in society. After 1994, he says from 1994 to 2014, that 20 year period, he said it was what he called the neutral world, where Christianity was seen as a valid option among all the different religious and philosophical options. It was seen as a valid option, it was tolerated, and being a Christian didn't significantly disadvantage you or advantage you as a member of the culture. But he says from 2014 on, and there are reasons why he picks these dates related to kind of key uh, events that happened in the culture. But from 2014 on, he says, we're in what we'd call the negative world, where our culture has repudiated, by and large, repudiated 
Christian teaching and Christian values, a Christian worldview, and Christianity is seen as a threat to the culture, not a benefit to the culture. Now, as I said, the dates are disputable, and certainly it would look different if you're in the north or in the south, if you're in New England or California or Nebraska or Texas. It's going to look different. The timeline's going to look different. But I think we all would agree that there has been a rapid change in our culture and its view of the church, its view of Christ, and our perception of a hostility towards us who name the name of Jesus Christ in our culture. I'll give you an example. When I started in ministry, the main way of training people to share their faith, to go out and share their faith with unbelievers, the main uh, training method was called evangelism explosion. Every theological tradition had its own, but in our theological circles, evangelism explosion was the way to train Christians to go out and share their faith. And the basic idea was that you actually sit in classroom training and learn a clear, concise, effective outline for the gospel so that you make sure you can share it well when given the opportunity. And then after you learned how to share the gospel, what the content of the gospel, unity, knocking on doors, what we call cold contact kind of evangelism, back then that was the main training method. But by the time I started in ministry, you could tell that the culture had changed, at least here in the north, because evangelism explosion was not effective anymore. Just as a strategy for getting the gospel to the world, because knocking on somebody's door and speaking to them about spiritual matters or personal matters, that was seen as offensive and unacceptable. And so often when we tried to do our on-the-job training, it actually uh, discouraged Christians from sharing their faith as opposed to encouraging them and helping them to see fruit. That method probably worked pretty well in the 1950s, probably more so in the South than in the North, but we needed a different strategy for sharing the gospel. The content had to stay the same, but the means of getting it into the community had to adjust to the culture that we were trying to reach. Of course, when we talk about the attitude of the world towards the church changing in the last 30 years, we have to admit that we're talking about from a human perspective in a relative sense, because when we go to scripture, we find out that from the very beginning, from the time Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that the world has been hostile to the church. And so it's always been a question of how overt and open has that hostility been, but it's always been there because the world is under the reign of the evil one and it's always been at war with Christ. It's always been hostile to Christ and his church. In a sense, that hostility in our own culture has just come out of the closet, so to speak. So this is a time to look to the book of Titus. It's very timely to spend our summer reading and digging deeper into this short epistle that Paul wrote to his associate Titus, because this, as we will see, was a letter written to a struggling new church that was in a very difficult and hostile environment, very much like our own. Let's start, and we always try to do this when we start to study a book of the Bible, no matter how short or long it is, we always want to take some time at the beginning to look at the background of it, to look at the historical context, the cultural context, 
to look at the, who, the, who wrote the letter, who received the letter, what person or what group received the letter. It helps us to interpret it correctly, to make sure to be careful in our handling of the Word of God, to make sure that we don't misinterpret what Paul was writing and what the Holy Spirit intended us to hear. So who was Titus? Well, he's often called a pastor, but he wasn't a pastor in the same sense that we think of a pastor today because he didn't have long-term responsibility. He was more like what I would call Paul's fixer. He was sent by Paul as his official emissary to help with churches that were in crisis, either an internal crisis with morality or doctrine, or an external crisis where it was being attacked by the world. And so he was Paul's, we use the word sometimes in the church, vicar, and we don't have vicars in the Presbyterian church because the word vicar means substitute. In other words, a vicar was intended to be somebody who represented a higher authority. And so Titus was a vicar of Paul. Paul sent Titus to churches as his representative carrying his apostolic authority to oversee and particularly to help churches in trouble. Matter of fact, one commentator called Titus uh, one of Paul's special forces in a spiritual sense. When you think of a vicar, you think of a representative. I used to always have that speech to my children when my children were young and my wife and I would go out on a date and we bring in a babysitter. You know how children are with babysitters. They want to see how far they can get, how much they can break the household rules because they don't figure the, the babysitter speaks with the same authority. So I'd always have that same speech when I'd leave the house. Like, this, I didn't say this is my vicar, but what I said is this babysitter is my representative. My, this babysitter has my authority, and both you and the babysitter will be accountable to my authority when I get home to make sure that things happen the way that I think they should happen in the home. Well, that's Timothy's role under Paul and his apostolic authority, his unique authority as an apostle. Oddly enough, Titus's name doesn't show up in the book of Acts which covers that early part of the church history. But he was around, and we know he was around because Paul says in his letter to the Galatian church in chapter 2, he talks about, he's actually talking about what we know about from Acts chapter 15. What happened in Acts 15 is that the churches were having a dispute, a, a controversy over whether Gentile Christians, when they became members of the church, did they have to be circumcised? In other words, did they have to keep a lot of the Old, Old Testament uh, symbols that pointed forward to the work of Christ, did they have to continue with these? And In particular, did circumcision have to take place when a Gentile came into the church? And so in Acts 15, we have this description where all the apostles and all the elders come together in Jerusalem like a general assembly that uh, Elder Brian was talking about earlier. They come together and they discuss and to say, what, what is God's will? Try to determine through debate and discussion of God's word, what is God's will? And what we know from Galatians chapter 2 is that Paul brought along with him Titus because Titus was a Gentile. Both of his parents were Greek. And so Paul brought him along and Paul, he says in, in Galatians 2, he refused to have Titus circumcised to make a point that faith alone and that circumcision was not necessary and that was certainly what the council of elders and apostles decided in Acts 15. So what's interesting, though, is that even though Titus is not mentioned in the book of Acts, he's mentioned 13 times in the rest of the New Testament. 
And nine of those 13 times are in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so what we know from studying the book, the first and second books of First and Second Corinthians is that Titus was a very important figure to that church because he was Paul's vicar, he was Paul's emissary, he represented Paul in visiting that church. We know he went there at least twice, maybe, maybe three times or more, to visit that church in the midst of its trouble. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, it was a deeply troubled church. Timothy had to, or Titus had to, to go to that church and deal with deep divisions, had to deal with idolatry, had to deal with sexual sin, unrepentant sexual sin, had to deal with doctrinal controversies. But Titus was Paul's man, and he did the difficult work of working with troubled, troubled churches. Well, Paul, from we, most conservative commentators believe, scholars believe, that Paul was released after his first Roman imprisonment. His first Roman imprisonment is what's described at the end of the book of Acts. We believe that he wasn't actually put to death then, but he was released after the record of the book of Acts, and that he did plant churches elsewhere, maybe made it as far as Spain, but we believe that he actually, during that period of time, after his imprisonment, is when he planted a church on the island of Crete. Crete was an island, is an island, that is south of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. And culture of Crete was actually had a terrible reputation. Matter of fact, the culture was very dark and Paul actually alludes to it with a statement that probably wouldn't be all that acceptable to our sensitive culture at the moment, but he actually quotes a pagan prophet of that, who was a Cretan, who was part of that culture. He quotes him in, in verse 12 of chapter 1. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How's that for a description of the culture in which you live? That's the state the church was in. And so this church that Paul had planted was like a flower being planted in a rock pile. Very difficult situation. New church, young Christians, surrounded by morally religiously dark culture. So, this is where Titus is sent. But Paul, before he addresses the call that Titus has, he actually talks about himself, because again, he's Paul's representative. He wants to make sure, Paul wants to make sure that Titus represents him well. And so he talks about his own identity. So who was Paul, as he describes himself here? Did not have in God's eyes. Paul knew who he was in God's eyes. We live in a culture that is all about sexual identity, gender identity, finding your identity in what you do or where you live or what you associate with or who you associate with. Paul knew who he was. And matter of fact, I would say that it is a key to spiritual maturity for a Christian that you understand who you are that you understand your identity, who you are as God sees you, who you are as God defines it, not the world. Putting outside the labels this world wants to slap on you and knowing every day as you go out to face the world who you are as God sees you. And Paul had a very good sense of who he was in God's eyes. He first of all calls himself a servant of God. Now, that sounds like a generic thing that Christians say. Yeah, we serve God. We're servants. But understand that when Paul says that, there's a ton of meaning to it. And it's good for us to dig into what does it mean to be a servant of God. 
It was foundational. He lists it first because it was the foundation of his identity. It begins at him being a servant of God. The word that's translated servant from the Greek into English here probably more accurately, more literally, would be translated slave. You may see that in the footnotes. But obviously English translators avoid the word slave because of its terrible reputation, notoriety, its, its connotation in our own culture. But think about it. If you define a slave as someone who is bought and owned by a master and who lives 24-7 to do the will of his master, then is that, the, is that not the description of every Christian? You are bought with the blood of Christ, you are owned by Christ, and you live to do the will of Christ 24-7. And so you, and Paul does use the language clearly in the book of Romans, you are a slave of Christ and a slave to righteousness. The big difference is that the way the gospel works is that you do the will of God not by external coercion, but by internal passion and desire. You're given a new heart to want to do the will of your master. But can you imagine if churches, if everybody in the churches in our dark culture understood their primary foundational identity be to be servants of God who live to do the will of God, who live by the ethic of not my will be done, but his will be done. Can you imagine how we could change culture if we all lived that way? Not my will be done, but his will be done. Okay, then after and only after he establishes his base identity as a servant of God bought with the blood of Christ, does Paul then go on to affirm his calling, and what a calling he had, a unique calling to be an apostle. Apostles were the prophets of the new covenant. Apostles spoke the very word of God. They spoke with the very authority of Christ. Paul was a vicar of Christ. Paul was a human representative of the authority of Christ. And so Paul understood that when he taught, he taught with the same authority as the Old Testament prophets and with the same authority of Christ because he spoke for Christ. And so he says to the, uh, he says in, in um, oh, we'll get to that in a minute. The, the, the fact that he is an apostle means that he is a sent one. That's what the word apostle means. And so when you think about the interrelation between servanthood and authority, how important it is that those who are in authority have a base foundation of being a servant of God. Because we live in a culture where you can't pick up a paper, you can't check on the internet, the news media, you cannot listen to what's going on in the world without hearing about people in authority abusing that authority for selfish purposes. We live in a culture that is full of politicians and policemen and teachers and parents and even pastors who selfishly abuse the authority given to them because they do not see themselves first and foremost as being a servant of God. They do not see themselves as living by the creed, not my will, but his will be done. And that's how authority gets abused. Jesus taught his disciples, he said, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Jesus taught us that the shepherds of the sheep lay down their lives for the sheep. So Paul wanted Titus to understand that as he represented Paul's apostolic authority in this church, this fledgling, young, growing church in a very dark and difficult and hostile land, he wanted him to understand his purpose is to do what Paul was called to do as an apostle. And he describes what that calling is in verse 1. He says, He is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Think about that for a minute. The whole purpose of Paul's mission in existence was for the sake of the faith of God's people, those who were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. His whole ministry was built upon that sense of calling, to build up the faith of those who had been brought by grace to Jesus Christ to follow him. It's what he describes beautifully over in Ephesians chapter 4. And beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, he says, And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. He understood that the, that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers are all given to the church for the sake of building up their faith so that they would stand firm against the winds of doctrine that blow against them, the falsehoods, the lies of the world. And so how do we get that faith? What does that faith look like? What is faith that perseveres and endures in dark times and dark places? It's very relevant to us today. And I'm not going to tell you anything profound. I'm just going to take you back to the basics of what the New Testament apostles and prophets taught us. There are three basic characteristics that Paul lays out here for saving faith, true saving faith, the kind of faith that will endure all the trials and all the hostility and all the opposition that you're going to face in the world. It comes down to three characteristics, truth, godliness, and hope. Truth, godliness, and hope. That's the faith that endures. That's the faith that Paul and Titus worked for. That's the faith that I and the other elders at Oakwood work for. Faith that is based on truth, that produces godliness, and is anchored in hope. Let's look at the first one. Saving faith is built upon truth. Paul begins his description of this faith by talking about how he imparted knowledge of the truth. Paul understood that his teaching came directly from God. He wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul and the Old Testament prophets brought the word of God to God's people. And that's where faith begins, is through the word of God. It begins, it's planted by the word of God in the heart of a sinner. These new Christians 
on this island of Crete in the Mediterranean were in the midst of a culture that was where the people were described as always being liars. And they were under attack constantly by Satan, who Jesus described as a liar and the father of lies. We too live in a culture that is full of lies, a culture that aggressively pushes its lies upon unsuspecting citizens and even tries to push their lies upon the church. And too many churches have compromised. Our culture is full of lies about how the universe began and how the universe continues. The culture is full of lies about false gods and false religions. It's built on a lie about human autonomy, individual autonomy. It spreads lies about when life begins and when life ends and what makes a good life. It lies about marriage, it lies about parenting, it lies about sex. Tomorrow we're going to celebrate the 4th of July, a day to celebrate freedom. But it is going to be on vivid display how we define freedom as followers of Jesus Christ is very different than how the world around us, the culture around us, defines freedom. The culture around us defines freedom as the freedom to do whatever you want to do. We define freedom as the ability to do what God's perfect will tells us to do. That's true freedom. Freedom from sin, which means freedom to be righteous. Freedom to do the will of God. That's freedom. A freedom that the world doesn't know. In this letter, Paul will emphasize the priority of truth in keeping a church and keeping individual Christians strong in the faith. The priority of teaching, preaching, and sound doctrine. And yet, Unfortunately, we look at the larger church in our culture in America, it seems to be anemic in faith. And one of the main reasons why it is anemic in faith is because there is a famine for the word. There is a lack of teaching of the word. They did a Lifeway study a couple years ago. They found out that of those who attend church regularly, only 20% read their Bible every day. And oddly enough, that's the same number, 20% of people who never read their Bible but still attend church regularly. The church is full of biblical illiterates, doctrinal illiterates, and it leads to shallowness and confusion in the church. And that's what we see when we look around. We need to read the word always, daily. We need to dig deeper into the word, not to be content with our understanding of the word where we are today, but always be striving to dig deeper and understand it more. God's word is self-authenticating. That's what we teach in theology. It is self-authenticating. What that means is that as you dig deeper into the word, the more confidence you get that it is the very word of God, the inerrant, infallible word of God that transforms lives. been spending my whole life studying the Word of God, and I've never been more sure that this is God's very Word and the only Word given to us for faith and life. And so we must re recommit ourselves continually as we live, as the culture gets more and more hostile, the more we must cling to and dig into the Word of God because that is what will keep our faith strong. 
Secondly, saving faith necessarily produces godliness. We're going to see that throughout this letter. Paul keeps emphasizing to Titus what it means, what it looks like to be followers of Jesus Christ. He uses the word godliness. What it means to look like God, to have the character of God reflected in your mind, in your heart, in your actions. We are people who say, not my will be done, but your perfect will be done. That means we are to be a godly people. Not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Because that's what real faith does. Real faith involves a new heart that desires to do the will of God. Not perfectly, and that's why we need the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we need the shed blood to atone for our sin, to cover our sin, because we will continue to sin. We are going to not serve the will of God perfectly in this life, but we will serve it progressively, becoming more and more like Christ because that's what happens when the Word of God and the Spirit are working together in your life. Wherever the Word of God is in your life, that the Spirit will be there also. And the two of them together work to conform you into the image of Christ. True faith will not be conformed to this world, but will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so in a Faith, a church with true faith, preaching the true gospel, holiness must be a priority as we rest in God's grace for our failures. And a revived church throughout history, a revived church has always been characterized by a deepened awareness of God's holiness and hatred of sin, of the extent of our own sin, and therefore a deep appreciation for the grace that's given to us through Christ. That brings us to the final characteristic of faith, the faith that endures in dark times. Saving faith is anchored in hope. This is a hope that's not based in this world because Paul says in verse 2, it's the hope of eternal life. Not the kind of hope that this world gives. Not a hope in this world, but a hope for eternal life. That hope was de defined by one commentator this way said, it's a confident certainty and expectation of something that is not yet ours, but will be. A confident certainty and expectation of something that is not yet ours, but will be. It's that that Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 calls a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Do you have an anchor to your soul? What are the hopes that get you out of bed in the morning? You know that time when you first wake up and you really want to go back to sleep, really don't want to crawl out of bed, but you, you got to think about something good that's going to happen that day that you feel that motivates you to get out of bed and get your day started. Is it your job, your marriage, your kids, your friends, your hobbies, your favorite sports team, whatever? We have lots of different earthly hopes, worldly hopes that help motivate us to get through every day. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is in eternal life. The fullness of our salvation that will not come until Christ comes again and does away with sin once and for all and makes the universe perfect. Eternal life in the presence of our creator and redeemer. And I'll tell you one thing. That's one way to know if the church where you're attending is truly preaching the gospel or not, the true gospel, the biblical gospel, when it talks about hope, when it tries to instill hope in you, when it talks about hope, is it talking about hope in this world or in eternal life? 
Is it talking about hope for social justice? Is it talking about hope for a better marriage? Is it talking about hope to be a better parent? Is it talking about hope to be more disciplined in life? Those are all good things. And good churches will talk about those things. But the hope that's being offered is eternal life. The fullness of our salvation. The ultimate hope. Being with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the hope we offer. That's our confident certainty and expectation. What we don't yet have, but we are certain we will have. Now, how can we be certain? What makes it's a hope, an anchor, and not just a wish? Well, Paul tells us here. He gives two reasons. First of all, our hope is based in God's character. He says in verse 2, this promise that's been given to us, the promise of redemption, the promise of salvation, the promise of eternal life, this promise comes from God who never lies. He promised it before the world began. Not in response to something, but as he planned all of human history, he made a promise to his chosen people. And God never lies. You can trust his character. We are a people of the covenant of grace. That means we are a people of the promise. Our hope is in God's promise, and God has never broken a promise, and he never will. He's incapable of it. That's why we can be confident that this promise will be fulfilled. Secondly, our hope is based in the finished saving work of Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't explicitly say it here. He'll get to that later. But he alludes to it where he says that this promise of a Savior was at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. He's talking about the gospel message that was entrusted into his hands. He was given this message about the eternal Son of God coming to earth and adding a human nature to his divine nature, living a perfect life among us, offering up his perfect life as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, shedding his blood to cover our sin, to provide forgiveness for our sin, and then being raised from the dead to prove that God had accepted his sacrifice in our place so that we would be considered not only forgiven, but righteous in the sight of God because of Christ's blood and Christ's righteousness given to us. God's gift of grace. That is what our hope is based upon. Now that sounds cliche and typical. We're going to hear that in any, any preacher say it, hopefully. But I want you to understand what it's not. your hope is not based in. Your hope is not based in you continuing to believe. Your hope is not in you doing anything, being a better person, reading your Bible more, going to church more faithfully. Your hope is not based in any of those things. Your hope is based in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That's what your hope is based upon. Nothing in you, only in what Jesus did for you. God cannot lie. He promised what he was going to do by sending his son and your hope is in what his son did by dying for your sins and being raised from the dead for your justification. That's what your hope is based on. That's your anchor. I mentioned Hebrews 6.19 that talks about our hope being an anchor, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. He's, but he goes on to say, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. You see what he's saying? Why is our hope an anchor something that we can totally rely upon, totally be certain about? Because Christ has gone behind the curtain. He's gone into the presence of God. 
and presented his blood as an atonement for our sin, and he is our eternal great high priest. It's because of him that we are certain that when I die, I know I'm going to go to be with him because of what Christ did for me, not because of anything I've done for him. You see, this is the faith. The faith that is built upon the authority of God's word that produces holiness, godliness, and is anchored by this eternal hope. This is the light of the world. This is the hope. Jesus told his people, the elect that God had given to him, he told them, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to come and go. You're going to hear a lot about hope in this world and politicians and others that can give you hope in this world. But it's all darkness without the light of Christ because we have the word and the spirit and we have the faith that he's given us that endures. And churches that are built upon the word and godliness and hope are churches that transform culture. All our ministry strategies must be focused on the same goal that Paul and Titus had, a faith that is based in truth, that produces godliness, and is anchored in hope. If that's what your church offers to you, if that's what you've experienced, then go into the world and take that light to those who desperately need hope in this dark place. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what Christ has done for us. Thank you that you've opened our eyes, given us a faith to see who you are, who we are in our need of grace. Lord, help us to be a brighter light, to reflect your truth, your godliness, and your hope better to a world that so desperately needs it. We are under attack, but we are confident that we have already overcome in Christ. Thank you for our promises, which we cling to in the darkness, and that give us the light for the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.